1: You're listening to Politics on the Couch, but I think you knew that already. I'm Raphael Baer, but you probably knew that already too. I'm not sure we even have to go through these formalities anymore, especially not with an episode like this, a rambling chat about all kinds of things that stretches to the very limit the podcast mandate we set ourselves to talk about the nexus of psychology and politics. There's plenty of both of those things in there somewhere in this conversation with my friend and former colleague, Helen Lewis, but it's all bundled together with other chit-chats. High-end, serious, political and psychological chit-chat, of course. There's some stuff that was in the news just as we were recording a few weeks ago. Matt Hancock's WhatsApp messages. Uh, there's some culture war business, what Nicholas Sturgeon misjudged over the Gender Recognition Act. That one will be back in the news soon enough. Immigration on small boats, that's in there, and that's rarely out of the news. There's a bit on digital contamination of politics, on anti-vaxxers, on Miami, which is Helen's latest obsession, and I commend to you her most recent piece in the Atlantic magazine about that particularly peculiar US state and its relationship with Republican presidential wannabe and all-round maniac Ron DeSantis. But first, being a pair of journalists who do a lot of podcasts, we talked about podcasts. Specifically, whether that field has become a bit crowded recently, especially with what might be described as bloakish banter.
2: But I've been making this new Gurus episode about one about like, why are so many gurus men? And I put this theory to one of the podcasters, which is, do you think that women have friends and men have podcasts? <laughs> and like but what I mean is that they listen to podcasts that are like, if only I was in a pub with my friends, this is how fun it would be and I like I can surrogately be there through listening to the podcast and all hooting with laughter at each other's stories.
1: Well, so there's a kind of I get to you get to have your cake and eat it in terms of being actually quite antisocial and spending time on your own in your man cave while also doing bands vicariously through other people's bands.
2: Yeah, listening to like Joe Rogan and Russell Russell Brand like hooting with laughter at everything the other one says. But you don't actually have to leave your house. I mean, in some ways, amazing.
1: The podcast theory. So I'm now rattling through the podcast that I listen to, thinking, do I maybe do that a little bit? <laughs> like, so I, I really like. are we allowed to say the names of other podcasts or our podcast. I like. Um. Uh. The rest is history. And I, but I think their dynamic. It's quite a blokey dynamic. I mean, it's literally a blokey dynamic. It says it's too blokey.
2: It's so blokey. And then the rest is politics. Is like, can we? How many of this essentially the same man talking to himself can we find? And like, there's just going to be endless iterations of it now, presumably. Like the rest is sport. The rest
1: is is rowing the rest is rowing is sport as well that that, that can't be a different podcast
2: well like things that men like what are men like World War 2 the rest is yeah dying
1: early but what is what are there there are women podcasts who
2: no they're not allowed it's illegal Raph it's been it's been outlawed for, for a couple of years now the rest,
1: the rest is women. <laughs>
2: the rest is women. <laughs> no, and there's um. Fortunately, with Fee and Jane, which does incredible numbers, that they've now moved. But that's which is basically like the lady version of, um, the rest is history. Right? It's just two people having a chat, and it's the same two people every week. Anyway,
1: I'm going to do a I'll go a, a wild and probably wrong gender stereotype speculation here, and I wonder if this is because when women get together with their friends and talk about stuff, they genuinely perhaps share intimate things about themselves that are private, whereas a lot of what men do in that situation is quite performative anyway, and they're not really letting anyone in. So it doesn't matter if you catch your microphone and broadcast it to, well, in our case, millions, but in some of these other podcasts, just podcasts, just a few thousand people.
2: Yes, I know what you mean. There's a sort of difference between ha ha ha, mate, remember when I copped off with that girl in the Sainsbury's car park when I was 17 versus I'm really worried I don't love my children. And my husband bores me, <laughs> like oh, bit much, bit much.
1: Those are qualitatively different. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, no confessional. Is there a very confessional podcast form? There
2: is a one about OnlyFans creators, which I have to say, I've I've learned a thing or two from.
1: I don't know what that means. This now makes <laughs> me feel like a bit, a bit like an old person who doesn't understand, who gets told off by his children for using his like prodding his phone with one finger instead of typing properly like a person under the age of 30. What, is what, what have you just described? So what is there's that? a big
2: thing on TikTok of chopping up clips of podcasts. And so that's how I normally consume podcasts. Yeah. And there's one that is made by OnlyFans creators. OnlyFans, the popular subscription site, which is, you know, allegedly for all kinds of stuff, but it's actually really for sex work. And it's two incredibly broad-minded women invite on other women whose job it is to be professionally broad-minded about the things that they're asked to do. And then they say things sometimes that make your hair
1: curl. Okay, um, I highly recommend it to you. Although it sounds like in this context, the hair's probably already curly to the extent that it's on the podcast.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and then there's the one that's the... Um, you know, that one of the most popular ones is My Dad Wrote a Porno, which is Two Guys and a Woman. And there's one...
1: That was the origin story of podcasts catching on, wasn't it? That was the podcast, the first for a lot of people, that was the first time they discovered podcasts.
2: Yeah, I haven't, I haven't listened to any of that. And I'd, I was going to say, it feels like it's been so many years now that they're milking it, but I think that's not a happy phrase in the circumstances. <laughs>
1: Anyway. I didn't even realize it was still going. I thought it was a one-off. I thought once he, the dad had written the porno, what more could they do? Like make him write another one? Presumably got better. I don't know. <laughs> He's
2: now actually very good at it. They're not embarrassing at all. Um, anyway, sorry, we My should talk is now about a professional politics. Porn shouldn't we? Script
1: yeah, <laughs> Right. No, but okay. So I'm now going to attempt an elegant segue right. into what it is we want to talk about. Right. So what we are talking about here is the phenomenon of media about media, and you know, we're just demonstrating exactly how the sorts of people who Engaged in that can do it forever, and actually, at some point, the iterations of that become really, really far removed from the actual culture that they're talking about. Two recent examples, which I'll throw out there: one is the WhatsApp group, the Matt Hancock and the WhatsApps. The sense that somehow there was this environment in which everyone was just sort of... No, this that doesn't work. There's no connection there, is there?
2: No, I think there is a connection there because it's about...
1: Okay, help me out with the connection here. I feel there's a connection, but I don't know what it is.
2: Because the thing I've got when I read those WhatsApp groups is that there is a complete blurring of the boundary between professional and personal. And that's something that you saw in journalism, first of all, with Twitter, right? So the same place that you were supposed to be breaking your stories and being like a serious news journalist was also people being like, I love cheese and, you know, I'm so depressed today. I don't think I can get out of bed. And you were like, you know, why are you telling 150,000 people who don't know you this? They don't care. And so the WhatsApps felt like that, right? You can't have a work environment in which there isn't some kind of lubricating banter. But the idea is that, so, like, if you're in a work environment, that would happen in the, like the coffee break or whatever, or the, like the beginning of the meeting. Then you'd have the serious meeting. And what's the jarring thing about reading those WhatsApps is? they're just it's all just completely mixed so it's half like we are worried about the case fatality rates are people going to die and then it's half going like George Osborne shading Matt Hancock for being overexcited (laughs) or like Michael Gove giving away that they're going to
1: have a pointless meeting or whatever you know. Yes, exactly. So it's the sort of oh, first. Of all, I'm going to move on from the fact that you use the term lubrication and Matt Hancock in very close proximity in a sentence there.
2: Lubricating banter, Raph. That's what all podcasts run on. <laughs>
1: Sorry, you're talking about yeah. So it's the kind of the water coolerization mm. of actually quite important things that go on. And I think I think you're right there. That I mean that has always happened, and there has always been an understanding that there's an idiom that you use in private that you don't use in public, and actually. The assumption that some of those or a lot of those conversations ought to have essentially been yeah, you know, in real life meetings or memos or and there should have been a sort of civil servant noting that this was going on. And it is that how different is that from sort of sofa government, which was the charge against the Blair administration long before this was a thing?
2: Yeah, it's a steady progression, isn't it? Uh, you know the kind of Gove and the Mrs. Blurt email if you remember that there was the idea that they were using off the books Gmail and they were using G-Chat in order to get around freedom of information laws so that was a problem of about you know five six years ago you're right about safer government there's lots of stuff by Harold Wilson complaining about the fact that he was sitting there in cabinet meetings and Tony Benn was writing a diary Barbara Carls was writing a diary I think Tony Crossan was writing a diary it was basically like half the people were doing a cabinet meeting and half the people were writing like jaunty notes for future memoir
1: use So it's not. A new new the gove one where the message which was presumably happening in the meeting where someone said why are we having this meeting and Gove goes so that these people can have a bit of therapy and and feel better about having said something before we then afterwards just go and decide what to do i mean that a lot of people have been in that meeting (laughs) that is not unfamiliar um experience and well so it's what i find alarming about it or where I think it's actually potentially important is what we also know about the way that WhatsApp groups and those communications sort of radicalize and generate group that it might actually be doing something cognitive to the way people are thinking and discussing the issues that wouldn't happen if they were forced to do it in a slightly more rigorous professional setting.
2: Yeah and I think actually being forced to say things out loud and to someone's face and have a synchronous conversation rather than an asynchronous conversation also changes your experience of stuff, right? I, I, there is, I mean, I love WhatsApp. if I, you know, could marry an inanimate object, I would marry WhatsApp, but it it does, it makes you write in this very specific way. That's almost like a sort of beat poetry, you know, because the rhythm of it is each individual line drops one at a time and you find yourself like adapting everything you're saying into that form. And it's very good for delivering a punchline because you can drop the like line, wait a second, then the beat comes in. And I just wonder if that does, you're probably right, it probably doesn't actually fundamentally change the way that you think through and communicate in a way that's very different to the way that you would do. Um, I mean, which is why everybody sort of talks about the fact that you know GIFs and emojis became so popular because when you're having text-based speech, you're taking away all the phatic stuff that you get in communication. You know, the tone of voice, the accent, the people's demeanor, the eye contact, all of that kind of stuff. And there's been an attempt to recreate that. But yeah, it is very odd that in a way there's probably some great academic study to be done about what it meant for decision making that decision making was happening on WhatsApp in the first couple of m- months of the pandemic nothing good i imagine is the
1: answer well yeah, well no but and 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 just more generally does a kind of casualization of quite important discussions is it in any way related to unrigorous thinking and policy making i mean like it's, it's entirely possible that with boris johnson's prime minister there wasn't going to be rigor anyway and these people are just incompetent and charlatans and didn't know what they were doing so the fact that they were expressing that via whatsapp is that's really marginal to what the actual problem was but in the same in, i don't know in the same way it sort of feels like when you wear a suit you you, you stand differently and you, you you sort of consider yourself in a different position to when you, you're wearing your, your genes and trainers. And I wonder if there's a sort of a, a linguistic thing where you're just, if, that's the, if there's a sort of a, a bounce idiom to the way you're doing policy, actually the policy is worse.
2: You're right, though. It's very hard to dis- uh, separate it out from the particularity of the fact that the person that is involved in many of these WhatsApp groups is Boris Johnson. And I have to say, those leaks so far, the ones I've read, didn't particularly change my opinion of anybody. But it did remind me about his unique pathology, which is the total inability to bear sincerity. And so as soon as they start talking about case fatality rates, he has to be like, what does 0.04 mean? You know, answers on a postcard, like start of a 10, marks. On, and he just can't sort of deal with with being sincere. But, and this might be, you know, let's remember these are selectively released. We won't see them all. It's quite notable that Chris Whitty doesn't do that, isn't it?
1: Yes, exactly. Well, And the, and the, the formidable, uh, that exchange where... The Spectator article, where where the Johnson is sort of saying, "Why why aren't we doing this thing that this writer in the Spectator thinks I should do?" (laughs) And the response: "People would die, Prime Minister." (laughs) Yes, that 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 is a very effective piece of commentary written in a journalistic style. And then there's this other thing we call rigorous data, which would suggest perhaps a different course of action. But again, performing, communicating in that genre uh, as he would, as you would expect a serious advisor to do, had he also been in the room. this isn't even what the original thing i was going to (laughs) to ask you about on on the
0: sidetrack
2: no because i've been thinking about it because i'm doing a bonus um uh well i'm 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 doing i'm thinking about doing a radio 4 series about instant messaging basically uh and i'm really interested in that Uh, you know how much of our lives has moved into text particularly and like when that started and we'll we'll see but i think the whatsappification of politics is just something that's really interesting to me because i think you're right like Form does kind of you know dictate content to some extent.
1: Well the lockdown really accelerated that first of all because everyone was the, the, the WhatsApp group became the tea room for people who weren't allowed in parliament. So um and but also because closed WhatsApp groups are radicalizing and people Perform and they like getting reward and they don't want to be the outrider. It did all sorts of crazy things, but then you have the the sort of additional layer on top of that, which is if people know that a screenshot of it is going to be leaked, this sort of strange blurring of how much of this is a communication that has the simultaneously this illusion of great intimacy and is actually broadcast. And that goes back to yeah the main one of the genre, which is Twitter and why it was so just caught on in politics and journalism so well.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that's why, and I think there's been a move away from that stuff towards podcasts. In the sense, that I think people genuinely do feel on a podcast you can't hide who you are. I'm in
1: trouble now. Then,
2: <laughs> in the same way, right? Like it, everyone sort of drops, everyone drops their guard after like three and a half hours of rigorous podcasting. But you know what I mean? Like, and also because you just get people's tone of voice and stuff like that. That it's not quite so performative in the same way. Like it. When I first got on Twitter, it did have a sense of a space where you could actually genuinely have a conversation. And obviously for years it has not, in fact, been that. It has been the press release service for the Department of
1: Narcissism for all of us. Yeah, or the anger video game, as someone brilliantly put it, you know.
2: Yeah, exactly. So I agree with you. And I think that is interesting about those public-private Tory-plotting WhatsApp groups because clearly it's not stopping the Tory party plotting against people, right? They did a very good, effective job on Liz Truss in the end. But there is obviously the difference between the actual plotting WhatsApp group and the, you know, made for TV plotting WhatsApp group.
1: You observe this stream that you'd like to think, well, if I, if I, I can still swim in that and not get wet, I'm not necessarily part of that problem. I can be in that, but not of it, which I, I think so self evidently isn't true. And when you think about all the politicians who are still doing that and using it, there's a part of me that's perhaps almost too generous in thinking somehow they know that's not reality, that obviously they are they're maybe more cynical or well, they're less cynical in a way than I think they are, that they might genuinely think, oh, likes and retweets, that means this is really popular, I should do more of that, as opposed to likes and retweets, this means the people who already massively agree with me and follow me on Twitter, and there's only about 30 of them, are giving me love. That's entirely meaningless as a representation of what's actually going on in the country. And I don't know which it is, do you know what I mean?
2: No, I, I agree with you, because I think there's a way in which Twitter as well has been the largest vector of pluralistic ignorance. You know the idea that nobody knows what actually everybody really thinks because a couple of incredibly loud voices dominate and you know Hector and bully people out and then you find out that actually everybody has, has thought of something and, and you know some of the right the subjects I write about gender being one of them you get that sense very strongly because literally everybody sends you private messages going I completely agree with you I couldn't say it out loud um, and and I and I think that has been one of the ways in which Twitter has been really poisonous for politics in a way it's not really often talked about it was very notable that Biden basically in his last reaction election campaign was like i don't care about twitter it's not it's, it's completely
1: pointless and i think actually at the top of the labor party there is some awareness of that kiss starmer i don't think cares about twitter wisely i mean on the gender thing i think it's quite interesting um on the subjects of things on podcast that can get you into trouble but no it, it was no you're fine no one no. has ever been
2: cancelled on a podcast raf <laughs> it's, it's fine Test it out.
1: no i mean what struck me is how badly it seems misjudged the mood of where, I mean, she might have misjudged the mood of where progressive politics was, but where a lot of politics was generally, having previously had been a pretty solid reader of that sort of thing. I mean, she wasn't a great first minister in many ways, but she was a very effective politician. And yet the choice that she made there and the way she decided to amplify that into a constitutional battle on that particular issue And the fact that the conservative, the English conservatives were able to say, nah, you're wrong about this. You've chosen the wrong battle here. And they were right and she was wrong. I wonder to what extent that was a, a bubble thing, that she just was surrounded by people who were surrounded by people who were actually a smaller minority on that issue than they thought.
2: Oh, I think and I think it was a bubble online and offline. I went to Scotland in 2021 to report on exactly this. And the headline of the piece, I think, ended up being the party whose success has become a problem. Because the thing that consistently came up was that, you know, in Scottish journalism and politics, as a sort of nexus, it's very, very tight circle uh, to the extent that people are like, basically everyone here has had a drink with everyone else or slept with everyone else or worked with everyone else, right? Like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, Kevin McBacon, would be like not even, you know, three degrees at most. And I think that was a problem. You know, she had... Stuffed the women's organizations in that sector with, you know, over the course of time, the way to get appointed into those more political facing lobbying jobs was to be somebody who the SNP could do business with. So she was in this kind of constructed hall of mirrors where everybody reflected their own opinion back to her. There was, you know, there wasn't, because the government hadn't changed for, you know, well over a decade, there was just everybody had kind of come through. Like you can see a version of it now with the fact that businesses are desperately glomming onto Labour, hiring people who used to work in Labour, going, what does Labour think? Oh my God, we're going to have to deal with a Labour government. But I think that yeah, the SNP's incredible dominance shut them off from sources of information. And the thing about that's most troubling about it is that they had a dry run of the gender recognition reform bill in Humza Yousaf's uh, hate crimes bill, which had some incredibly liberal provisions in it about, you know, sort of staring up, you know, in your own home, the idea was you could be sort of done for hate speech and in exactly the same legislative process where it just didn't get enough scrutiny. It was obviously full of stuff that was going to either fall to legal challenges or if, if enacted and people start getting arrested for this stuff, incredibly unpopular. And it, it just didn't get, it just didn't get through to them. And that was like a dress rehearsal for exactly everything that then happened with the Gender Recognition Reform Bill, where they just didn't listen to anybody who told them anything they didn't want
1: to hear, basically. I wonder, though, to what extent that's a function of what is essentially a small country run by a nationalist government. I mean, I remember when I was covering the Baltic states and in Latvian politics, Latvia is a small country. And because it was its politics was founded on rehabilitation of nationhood from under the soviet occupation it was a nationalist project you know degrees of nationalism were all of its politics largely um and everyone had been to the same universities and the people who were in positions to get elite power all, as you say knew each other drank together slept together um and with apologies to any latvian politicians who might be tuning in now um and
2: I know what you mean. But it did make me, reporting that story did make me realise that actually the kind of push and pull of oppositional politics is really important. And the other underconsidered thing about that was the fact that the SNP were governing with the Greens. And the Greens in Scotland, for some reason, m- seemed much more vexed about gender reform than they did about, you know, the death of the panda or what, like, old fossil fuels or anything like that. They had become a very, I mean, maybe segues this neatly to our main topic of conversations. I was really surprised that green parties to me, you know, should exist. Right, there, there is a market demand for for that, and yet the Green Party in Scotland seemed to be completely obsessed with culture wars, to being an ultra progressive party that was out further on the left flank than the SNP, which is already a very progressive party. So, and I don't really understand why why that happened, particularly apart from perhaps just Patrick Harvey's personality as the leader of the Scottish Greens.
1: Is that is one explanation possibly that? The, you know, again, the, the space for being a progressive force in Scottish politics is quite crowded because there's, you've got the Labour Party and actually the SNP, yeah, you know, well, it likes to have it both ways, but it, it pictures, you know, to at least a, its former Labour voters as, as a progressive party. But also then there's a wider long tail of what it means. So once you've decided, right, we're going to be left Puritans, we're the people who are left, but without, you know, unfor, you know, ugly compromises of actually having to, you know, manage a, an economy or make difficult governing decisions. Coupled with that, you are in, you know, in this sort of the long tail of the post-Cold War era where you can say you're for socialism and you're against capitalism. But quite quickly, it's not entirely clear really what that means in practice. You know, it's all yeah, you know, there is this I think it's a long standing problem that radical left politics has with a economic story that will really get a purchase other than capitalism is mean and people don't get enough stuff as a result of it, or the distribution is unfair. And so, it, and plus the people who feel this most passionately are often actually middle-class graduates. So it sort of defaults into a cultural space because it's not really about class emancipation through the means of production. It's not really about economic Marxism. It was so, I mean, I don't know, maybe that's overthinking it or just wrong. But it feels to me that that's, there's a long tail of the left slightly vacating a a hard economic argument to have a slightly easier cultural one
2: well i often think about a lot about that phrase you know that you're not stuck in traffic you are traffic and that's what i want to say to people who are like the right keeps engaging in culture wars and it's like no both sides are engaging in culture wars you just think you're fighting for truth and justice and the other side are fighting the culture war right that's that's how it how it is you have to understand that things that you are principles you hold very dearly are to them hysterical culture war propositions, and vice versa.
1: The fact that woke, the term, has gone very efficiently from being a badge of honour that you can use to describe yourself if you're enlightened about race politics to something that the right accused the left of being to wind them up and it's a term of abuse and then that the left and the progressive left more or less denies even exists but it happened incredibly quickly but the same thing happened with um political correctness you know it wasn't i don't think there were people advertising themselves Mm. as politically correct but there was clearly a notion that there was a right and a wrong way to express yourself and that it was better to be for, yeah, there was no better way of saying it. You have to be correct in your politics. And that was political correctness. But as soon as only existed within the formula of something that had gone mad, according to Daily Mail columnists, the left and the progressive side immediately relinquished it and said, well, w- they don't even recognize this term. This isn't a real thing. And we're not going to therefore try and define what the doctrine is, because the doctrine only exists in the minds of paranoiac right people, right wing people who are trying to get us. But then you don't ever have a doctrinal kind of, codex of things you actually believe that people can legitimately attack because you just say it doesn't exist it's just something in the it's a figment did that make any sense at all what i just said
2: it does and i did warn you i was going to bring this back to florida because i've spent the last six months thinking about florida but if you apply that you know thesis from the coddling of the american mind that jonathan height and greg lichenioff book about you know the kind of sorting of american jobs right so the police have become more right-wing and academics have become more left-wing then you begin to understand why that might have happened, right? Because neither side, both sides, feel like they're the underdog. So the left has had a pretty rubbish time in electoral politics across large bits of the West in the last twenty years. So it doesn't feel like it's had a crack in, you know, in Britain. I think is, is that's definitely true. But at the same time, the right feels that it's completely excluded from the citadels of culture, from museum boards and university professors. You know, and. And publishing and you know like all the kind of cultural institutions so that's where that divide i think both sides would say that the other one is you know dictating and holding forth and has got the the reins of power it's just you know it's 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 kind of an impossible thing
1: to resolve i guess i mean yeah so there is a plausible argument that over the the arc of the the baby boom generation the left won the culture war in i mean in just thinking about the us context where by the mid 80s, it was completely accepted at the Vietnam War, which I think was really the uh, the key schism in American politics that really decided, defined so much of what then became culture wars. It, it was you know, the, the sort of the platoon, full metal jacket version of what the vietnam war was as in a, a, an appalling terrible waste of human life that just traumatized that generation and came absolute orthodoxy um you had uh, such liberal attitudes about sex sexuality drugs became kind of just what was cool as advertised by liberal culture in hollywood and increasingly popular entertainment so you could see if you're a, basically a socially conservative person in Sort of late-era Reagan's America and then under Clinton. I get that, although you'd completely won the economic argument by the end of Reagan, you know, you couldn't understand why your appeared to be your mainstream culture sort of hated you and thought you were a, a nasty reaction. You were always the bad guy.
2: And the turbocharged version of that is now exemplified by something like the libs of TikTok account on Twitter, right, which exists only to find the most extreme content by people with neo-pronouns and whatever it might be, you know, trying to tell three-year-olds to love drag and then reposting it for conservatives to get mad at. So that's the other thing that turbo charges the culture wars is just a huge amount of access to the most extreme end of the other side, which is also the phenomenon of like back when she was on Twitter, the kind of quote tweet of Katie Hopkins to show that you're against Katie Hopkins, right? It was just like constantly these, these so- social media platforms just rewarded you for finding a member of the opposing tribe who was unbearable and saying, look at this unbearable person i just think, i wonder if, again if those, those social conservatives that you're talking about you know they might have lived particularly in america but i think also here like you might have just lived in a place where that you, you were more felt that was a homogenous place and and then once the internet opens up you suddenly see that other people are living these very different lives
0: this mother's day celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from blue nile
1: Liliana Mason, who's a very good American psychologist, writing about polarization, who makes makes this point with regards to the sorting thing, that actually it wasn't that long ago that you had Democrats who felt very strongly about gun control, Democrats who were actually evangelical Christian, uh, and you know, Republicans who believed in right to abortion. That definitely existed, actually, not all that long ago. And so, and this is separate to digital sorting that just actually literally people moving towns and you know, going to college and then staying with their college groups and getting jobs in certain ways, polarize that. And then on top of that, you add the digital silos. But that's, that's so that then leads to this phenomenon where, and again, it's a thing, it's a point that, I don't know if you've read Ian Leslie's book, Conflicted, about like, he makes quite a good point in that, which is it's not true that people on the internet are only exposed to the points of view they agree with. They actually get exposed to many more points of view they don't agree with than if they were just reading their favourite newspaper or, you know, whatever watching their favourite TV channel. The problem is their exposure to those things is presented to them by someone they trust as an exemplar of stupidity and wrongness. Like, behold this point of view that surely you can agree is completely insane and wrong and morally in affront to all that's decent. Uh, so that is, yeah, you know, it's a subtle distinction, but I think it's important that exactly you say the sort of... And what happens then, sorry, I'll stop whispering in a second, but is you get the... Pro-
2: No, I just, it's interesting when you said that because it just made me think about the incredibly interesting Dominion lawsuit against Fox News that's happening in the US. So Dominion makers of the voting machines are suing Fox News. Uh, Fox News repeatedly implied that there was a kind of conspiracy and it's very hard to sue for, you know, libel and things like that in America. You have to essentially prove actual malice. And so there's been this huge release of text messages from behind the scenes from some of the biggest Fox names around the time of the election um, that's basically you know, I, it's, I mean, it's going to help them make the case of actual malice because it is full of personalities saying, this will be terrible for our ratings if we say that Donald Trump hasn't won. And like Tucker Carlson saying Donald Trump quotes, <laughs> disgusts me. It just really reminded me when you said that because you also, because the other thing is the is metrics, right? And just and obviously on TV, you can instantly see the audience feedback, but also if you're any kind of YouTube creator or tweeter or whatever it is, you just have so much more exposure to what people like and don't like. You know, when you were writing for an old-fashioned print newspaper, there maybe was an overwhelming letter-writing campaign about something, but otherwise you sort of hurled stuff into the void.
1: I know. I find it amazing looking back to think that, you know, I started out in that in that game and I do, I find it odd to think, wow, all that, all that stuff. when I was writing those columns for the New Statesman back in the day, I mean, occasionally I'd get an email from someone saying I like that or occasionally get a call from Ed Miliband's office saying, what have we done to upset you so much? But <laughs> by and large... I just had to presume it was okay. You know, it's basically, you know, the editor and sometimes you would give me some feedback. Do you know what I mean? And it's, it's that's interesting. But also...
2: But that's why, again, like podcast is a return, right? Because actually what you do is you hear individually from podcast listeners, whether they like things or not. They don't tend to like gang up and on you and sort of like mass on you with flaming pitchforks. It's a return to a much older sort of like one-to-many relationship rather than the many all getting together amongst themselves and kind of deciding what a twat you are.
1: That is interesting. And again, but also incredibly intimate in the sense that, you yeah, as you say that once you start chatting and you the, the boundaries start to dissolve a bit and you're speaking directly into someone's ear hello people i'm speaking directly into your ear you know that's actually a bit weird when you think about it. let's not overthink that the, um, <laughs> the,
2: the, i know what you mean though but also and the little details of your life creep in right like so stephen bush and i had a podcast for several years at the new statesman which you were on sometimes but you know the fact that he his weird tabletop gaming habits or like whatever would just kind of creep in quite quite naturally or like my bizarre our love of the theatre and people then do end up like there are running jokes and stuff like that and it you're right it becomes intimate again in a way that writing for the internet really isn't because actually there's this kind of there was a big move towards like the school of the incredibly aggressive personal essay and then now almost every writer i know now feels much more tense about putting anything because it hangs around forever for people to use it as sort of opposition research
1: oh well exactly you you had that's a very interesting point the sense of your basically how, how what you write what you put in print and put on the internet is sort of ammunition for your enemies, and as a as a
2: yeah, and I wonder if politicians feel differently as well because speeches are now searchable right? If you wanted to find out something someone racist had said in 1982, you had to go and find their campaign leaflet that had been put through people's doors. And 10 years later, it'd be quite difficult to find that. And now it's just all, it's all there. Like sometimes it's very, you know, not easily accessible by Google, but like, I, I wonder if that's changed the way that people think and, and sort of hedge in the way that they think, or they try and couch stuff much more in boilerplate.
1: I was having a conversation with someone just today about this. I'm thinking about you know, the, the mid nineties, Tony Blair's rise to power, uh, the sort of the peter Mandelson operation from millbank and the awesome message discipline that they had which is sort of held up as this model of how to win or, you know, or how to run up at government and win. But you think, what, with four TV channels, a few newspapers, the people really...
2: Yeah, I know. The advi- The first piece of advice is first, go back to
1: 1994. Next. <laughs> so, you know, these things... I mean, on, on and on that, the point about um, hedging, though, makes me think there's, you know, in that, back to the, this question of opinions that actually you get exposed to only in the context of where the benchmark for what's wrong is. as yeah, a sort of a moral sorting tool. I think w- the other thing that happens is you, you you end up being afraid to agree with any of what the enemy tribe actually thinks. And this is definitely what's contributed to the polarization on the gender and trans question, because I think this is, again, something that I'm sure Nicola Sturgeon and a lot of people on, on the left got wrong about this, is they just thought, because the people who are sitting there thinking, don't really understand this, it's a bit complicated, don't really see any problem with Trans people being trans people, that all makes perfect sense. The sport thing, yeah, I can see there's a bit of an issue there. Prisons, refugees, yeah, yeah, that looks a bit complicated. What what, what exactly has everyone got against J.K. Rowling? Haven't really followed it, but looks a bit mad. You know, that is, that general kind of, can't we all just sort of work through this without shouting at each other, which was so, when you think about it, so obviously going to be the the, the broadest segment of reasonable people, simply wasn't expressing itself at all for years and years in that debate. Because they just didn't want to say something that th- th- would make them agree with people they hate, you know.
2: No, it's giving sucker to the enemy. Like that—that that is, and, and that's why I've, I find Keir Starmer's strategy on it to be completely fascinating. Because I think he's throwing a huge, smothering blanket of boredom over it. And my hunch about it is that he will say, like, there's still a commitment to quote unquote reform the Gender Recognition Act, right? But you know, you could reform it in any number of ways that don't involve putting rapists in women's prisons. Um, so I, I just think he's going to, he's, Am I, I, my hunch about the way that he operates is that he's just never going to say anything that indicates that he's even slightly gender critical, but he's not going to enact obviously bonkers reforms that would alienate even huge numbers of Labour voters, right, who are much like to be younger and therefore much more likely to sort of self-describe as being
1: pro-trans rights. Because there's a way of articulating it, you need to get the formula right in a way that could, Pass the sort of shibboleth test for, for some of those people I suspect yeah I think so so he'd bed, rather than just not say anything
2: I think so and I think you can see them it's really been interesting to watch the evolution of the message discipline and who's been allowed to get away with what I mean there's obviously one of my main problems with that argument is it's incredibly sexist and that the same statement coming out of a woman's mouth versus a man's mouth or like a feminist mouth versus a random man's mouth is just treated completely differently but you will now have where's treating his um, shadow health just say like a woman's got a vagina a woman's an adult human female which you know, I, having lived through this, was considered to be an unspeakably spicy take three years ago, but it, yeah, but it's, but it's kind of like,
1: and is that different because he's basically a man, or because actually somehow the that middle grey the middle area where people think, well, you have to at least be able to say some things about this for it to even be a debate at all, has surfaced above the the water level.
2: I think being a man definitely helps, um, but I also think it's about the fact that he's never publicly aligned himself with gender critical feminist side, which then purchases him the ability to say things. Yeah. My big thing I'm kind of constantly obsessed with is the fact that you should always try and use the like language and concepts of your political opponents. Right. So there's a big argument going on in America. And one of the things that I think Gavin Newsom, the governor of California has been very good about doing is to say like freedom, California is freedom, 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 which is obviously a huge tactical knock at DeSantis and, and Florida saying you know, their idea of freedom. But if you're, if you're on the left, you should say like you have the freedom here not to die of a preventable disease. You have the freedom like not to worry that you're going to you know become bankrupt if you lose your job. But present it in the terms that your your opponents like you know that would understand. And I think that's something that I suspect is happening with the the gender argument in the top bits of the Labour Party is to never sort of you know never align themselves with a side but use phraseology that is acceptable to to that
1: side. If you see what I mean the sort of the, the alternative be or the alternative problem is if you use the a sort of a, a jargon, not necessarily with regard to the particular the gender argument, but more generally sort of cultural arguments. If the left is always talking about social justice and equality Then even before they've started to articulate the argument, the segment of the audience goes, well, whatever you're about to tell me, that's what I would expect you to think anyway, because you're a sort of mad lefty or whatever. Whereas if you talk about, I mean, freedom is a very specific American thing, but in the UK, it would be, I don't know, opportunity, security, aspiration. But the thing is, you then have this problem with your own side that people say just by using those terms... You, you've been captured. You see that. You yeah. know, so the classic one being immigration. You know, the, the, it's I, it's quite hard to know what a labour position on small boats would be. That to to articulate it at all that would that wouldn't at a certain point on the left be considered a sellout, and you've essentially ad- adopted the language of of the enemy.
2: Right, and and poor old Ed Miliband could tell you all about that with his. Controls on immigration, mug But like, what Labour Party in history has not imposed any controls on immigration? Obviously, some kind of controls on immigration are going to be part of any nation state in the twenty first century's approach to its borders. So, yeah, I, I know what you mean. And there is also a fundamental problem as well, which comes down to it's it, the, this is where we're the problem, and I mean we as commentators about lazy commentators who only look at the rhetoric and don't look at the actual policy. And you know, you can look at something like i was just going to say like labor's israel policy right where is it versus what is the language that they're using about it you know that's that's the kind of thing is that you you end up with well all these people who've only looked into it very slightly going on sort of vibes and that kind of comes to a bigger point about why the culture wars persist which is that they're very easy when you're on deadline to turn in a thousand words on aren't they Let's be honest.
1: or oh, to have a view, yeah. Well, there are
2: right. I, I know you don't succumb to this because you're, you know, <laughs> you're doing proper journalism. But I do read a lot of columns where I'm like, well, that was you were the day before, and you were like, crisis, really, nothing going on, or like, I can't do Brexit again. I'll tell you what, I'll do statues,
1: or you know, why aren't you? But you know, but uh, okay, but you get into a, like a, so small boats is is interesting though because. It's hard to disentangle. Clearly, that it's not—that's not statues. That it, first of all, so having to what extent you have an asylum policy that works is is important. To what extent people really do feel very strongly about this, and they have MPs, and they channel their strong feelings to their MPs, and they're entitled to be represented in Parliament with those strong views, even if we don't like them very much. That's also democracy. But also, it is to me sort of plainly the case that the Conservative Party and Suella Braverman have locked onto this issue in the most cynical, vindictive way with no intention at all of delivering a policy that would actually work, or at least certainly no understanding of how it would work. And so therefore, you know, the, you know, the, where I suddenly have a lot of sympathy with people... On the left, you just say, I don't, I no longer care about what would be politically effective for Keir Starmer to do or how he has to reach the Red Wall. I actually just want a leader who's going to stand up and go, fucking stop it. Stop the vilifying of refugees. Just like, I, you know, and that's why I think the weird Gary Lineker thing, which drives me mad. I think everyone stopped talking about Gary Lineker. I think there is an element where... He filled a void where maybe actually the leader of the opposition should have just been saying some things that were morally true about what the government is doing.
2: Yes, I think there is. a, And that is one of my big questions about Keir Starmer. It's like, oh, it's so clever to stay out of these arguments. And it's like, but how many arguments do you stay out of without making me think, well, why didn't I just vote for the Tories instead? And, and that's the problem, isn't it? It looks it looks super smart to never get, you know, walloped in the, on the Daily Mail front page. But at some point, the job of the leader of the opposition is to get walloped on the Daily Mail front page and just, you know, sack up, son. Uh, and, and like, obviously pick your issues. But the small boats thing I found really fascinating. I first wrote about it in 2020. Do you remember during lockdown, Nigel Farage decided that he was a journalist and therefore didn't have to obey lockdown because he was going to do some important reporting on the small boats. And he went down to Kent and got on a sort of like dinghy and oh, look his boats. Um and I remember thinking oh well, that's brilliant like that he's he's obviously just doing a kind of sampling tour of like what are the new issues that I could glom onto and I think actually to some extent he's decided to go for kind of lockdown regret you know this my this feeling that there's that, that bit of the populist right is now trying to turn lockdowns into kind of the versailles treaty that is the kind of great grievance that can be prosecuted forever I'm just not sure it, I think it works for a small segment of the audience and so maybe that's enough to make those people feel like relevant and uh and flush with cash I'm just not sure the vast majority of Britons want to prosecute the argument about what was and wasn't done right during COVID. I think that most of us are just very happy not to be locked in our houses anymore. But the small boats thing I find weird because it made sense for Nigel Farage as an extra parliamentary right-winger to say this is a terrible problem, terrible problem, why won't the government do this? Look there's compelling footage of it, blah, blah, blah. When you're the Tory Home Secretary, why are you raising the salience of an issue which you cannot control, particularly when you cannot control without the cooperation of the french who you are spending all your time having therapeutics sort of slanging matches about to show how you know big and manly you are post-brexit that's the bit i don't understand like what is the focus group that they're seeing that think that they make them think this is good politically never mind as you say morally it being unjustifiable
1: it would appear to me that the obvious risk here is that you ramp up the salience of the thing, you confirm to the people who care most about it that this is genuinely the thing you should feel very passionately about and this really is the outrage that you believe it to be, and in time you advertise your impotence and inability to deal with it, at which point either the voters you were hoping to win over go off to the, whatever the next iteration of Farageism is, or they stay home, and actually that's a Labour seat. Because all well, you only need two thousand people in or three thousand people in some of those constituencies uh, to not vote Tory, you don't need anyone to go over to Labour, and Labour have won the seat. So, and because I that seems to me so obvious in a way, a, a hazard. I think you know I've asked around, and they, they, there there seems to be two explanations for this. And the first one is it's literally the only thing that might work. So <laughs> it is come down to.
2: Great. That's that's what you want to hear when like the record NHS waiting lists and like, yeah, well, sod it. We can't do anything about that stuff. We're completely screwed.
1: If you can somehow, like it's a very narrow path, but if you can just sort of say to enough people who care about immigration culture, the, broadly the sort of right wing culture voters, I'm on your side and hold on to enough of them and then separately just do you know, managerial competence on the economy, the inflation's come down just like we said it would and somehow that was our doing as opposed to it just happening by itself and then stir up some kind of fear of Keir Starmer, you've maybe get to the point where at least you deny him a majority. That's literally that. So you don't, you don't like it, but that's literally the only available strategy there is. The other explanation is that Rishi Sunak genuinely doesn't understand the lesson of the last... 15, 20 years of conservative politics which is the lesson of David Cameron you know I. if you feed the right wing beast it's never satisfied it always comes back from war and the reason he would maybe not understand that is because to have an understanding of it at all to even appreciate what a terrible terrible mistake it was for David Cameron to do the net migration target to give UKIP everything they wanted on Europe you'd have to be in a kind of cognitive space which recognises that Brexit was a mistake
2: ah uh. And he's not. That's the way and he's Yeah, he certainly not going to say it out loud. Yes, I think that's, that's true. And I also think there is a problem about the small boats in the sense of trying to make it a problem about France and all the French navies escorting them to British waters. Like that kind of jingoism is also a big part of it. But you've lost the amazing chip that you always had as a conservative all the way through the 2010s, which was like, and if, of course, if we had Brexit, we wouldn't have to deal with any of this. Um, Like the the kind of... The grievance aspect of it is more complicated now that technically we are supposed to be sovereign and free. There is also a third secret option, which is just that Suella Braveman really seriously does believe this. She is the most hawkish person on immigration in the whole world. Um, I seem to remember meeting her at question time in like 2016, 17, and I think her husband genuinely was a very rare British Donald Trump supporter. So it may be simply that she is the most right-wing person who has ever lived, and she's just entirely
1: carved this policy out on her own. Well, and also she, you know, if she wants to be a leader or do well in a leadership contest, you know, she knows who her sort of selectorate is. I mean, I met Suella Braveman before she was Suella Braveman.
2: Suella Fernandez, yeah.
1: And at a conservative, this is, I'm definitely gambling on things that, like your theory that no one listens to actually podcasts or that no one's got this far yet. So um, anyway, yeah. I'll, tell, I'll just tell this story just, just between you, me, this microphone and anyone who happens to be listening to this podcast. Um, and frankly, I'm never... It doesn't really matter uh, because Suella Brafman is never going to like me anyway. Um, I remember chairing an event.
2: There goes the chance to ghostwrite her autobiography, Raph, which I know you've been hanging on for.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, just but at least she could trust me with her WhatsApp messages. Right. Anyway, I'm going to tell the story. It's not an interesting story. I've already overhyped it up. I was chairing an event with her at a Conservative Party conference. I think she might even have still been a prospective parliamentary candidate. Uh, before she was even an MP, and the ECHR thing came up, as it often does at Conservative Party conferences, and she was talking absolute bilge about the you know Human Rights Court, you know, conflating it with the European Commission, with the European Council, with the European Union, just all the things that you just. I was sitting there, chair, thinking, "Wow, yeah, you really have no idea what you're talking about." And then I remember thinking. Are you actually incredibly stupid or are you already quite adept at pretending to be incredibly stupid because you think that's a sensible thing to do? And I remember checking her out afterwards and thinking, well, you've got a good degree from Cambridge. And it comes back to this thing. And this is, I think, interesting in relation to the um, Dominion voting thing and Fox, because it really sort of answers a question for me, that stuff, which is I had thought those people at Fox, how much do they actually believe this? And how much of it is just incredibly cynical? They know exactly how, what's going on. They just, it's raw interest in power and venality and amorality. And, and how much is actual ideology? And the answer is a lot, right? They don't believe the shits, really. They are actual bastards. I know. And In,
2: I- in a weird way... It- it really cheered me up because I was like, oh, this is really morally simple. They do just hate their own audience and they are cynically milking them for like, ratings and, you know, selling them weird pillows from the My Pillow guy. Oh, that's quite relieving in a way. But it also kind of explains why they're so angry when anyone questions them, right? Because it is that classic psychological thing of, you know, actually you're in the wrong. And then when anyone points it out to you, become much more furious as a way of kind of having to deal with projecting that Feeling of, you know, back outwards again. So it made total sense to me. But yeah, I know what you mean. There is a kind of sense of like, there are quite a few people in British politics who do appear to sort of voluntarily lobotomize themselves in the pursuit of power. And I wonder if she falls into that category or if she's just learnt a set of sort of talking points. Because that's the other thing you meet sometimes when you meet politicians, right? It's like, obviously, they all get the lines to take. And some people bother to read stuff from first principles and some people are very they know they can wing it and actually the more eloquent people really you know they cause themselves trouble because they they always can wing it and so maybe she's just really good at winging it and just reading the lines to take and she's become a sort of living line to take but that would suggest
1: i mean so is it possible then that at some level this is really reaching here at some level (laughs) that the sort of the anger with Gary Lineker about tweeting saying this is all a bit of Third Reich, isn't it? Your migration policy isn't just them saying, "Oh, brilliant, we can have an argument with the lefty BBC." This is just what we love doing. Like, as you, know, you were saying about columnists, you know, you could, this is just so much easier than having policy. Let's have this fight forever. And how, or is there an element of somewhere deep down in the shrivelled, hardened kernel of their soul? there is still a, just a moist droplet of conscience that makes him think, no, he's kind of got a point about this being actually really nasty and racist. I, uh, I, I don't actually believe that. I honestly, I don't, I kind of want to.
2: No, because I feel like, the, well, one of the things that I think is genuinely cheers me up about heading very fast towards 40s, I now feel like I have been around long enough in covering politics to have seen the same thing happen two different people, like the same scenario play out. And there is a thing where you just become the highest paid person at the BBC. And then everybody wants to have a go at you. It happened to Jonathan Ross, right? And yes, okay. So he and Russell Brand should not have phoned up Manuel from Faulty Towers and bragged about sleeping with his granddaughter. That was gauche. But like that was the thing that was kind of waiting to happen. Then it happened to Clarkson. And yes, he should not have deck that producer at the end of a long day's filming but like it, it is the kind of drumbeat of the highest paid bbc presenter and it becomes like get him get him get him. and it is usually like get him get him get him get him let's find the thing because the scalp is just too too good and they become the avatar of bbc excess in whatever way right highly paid bbc presenter so i think there's i think you know gary linick has just been the axe has been waiting to fall on him. I wonder, I mean, he made makes a lot of money, obviously, but not that everything in this world comes back to podcasts, but he does own Goalhanger, right? Like he does own a podcast company, which must be making a fairly decent wedge.
1: Yeah, they're doing well. They're, they're literally selling out stadiums, putting, like, putting two blokes in front of a microphone, and they're blokes, talking about politics, yeah.
2: Talking about the Russian Revolution. Yeah, but that's so, – and which is the same thing, right? And Clarkson went to Amazon for Squillions and Jonathan Ross went to ITV for a really decent – like the people who get to be the most best-paid BBC producer tend to do it because they're quite good at presenting and in quite high demand. So I don't know. There is a kind of just feeling and – like, and, and I think if Gary Lineker falls and he just decides to sod off, you know – Bad luck, Graham Norton. Like your time is <laughs> is coming <laughs> what yeah. next. Yeah, but that's one of the reasons why BBC presenters now try and get paid through production companies because it hides their salary. Because the last thing you want to be, do is be the face of BBC salaries.
1: On this particular issue, though, you do feel that it's the week when they've done the bill, and it, it's the the one the message the government most wants to talk about. I mean, it just feels so. Yeah, you know, Pompidou Centre wearing all the structure on the outside. There's not even trying to have a policy that would feasibly stop the boats, which is the name of the policy. It's clear, very clear.
2: But that is quite American. That's quite American. So there's a thing that's happening now. There's a special legislative section in Florida. I know you always wanted me to tell you about the... Uh, <laughs> yeah,
1: that's, well, that's going to be the, the title of this podcast episode. Is going to be Florida. It's there in the background.
2: It's always lurking. Um, the America of America, as they call it. But um, So they're having a special legislative session. There's essentially a cleanup session now that Rhonda Sanders and the Republicans have a super majority in the House and Senate there so they can pass anything that they like. And some of the things that they are putting through are obviously unconstitutional. And it's because what they want to do is they want to have the fight and they want to be, they want the judiciary, like, oh, these corrupt judges, which is again, like a very Orban tactic as well, right? You identify some people who can be painted as enemies who are holding you back and then you deliberately pick fights with them. And that to me seems to be a Maybe that always happened in British politics, but I, I can't remember seeing that it happened so obviously before where I guess it happened over Brexit, right? The whole thing was like, we're going to pick lots and lots of fights about stuff we can't do because the evil Europeans are holding us back. And you talk to other people who were ministers and they were like, there was very little that I wanted to do that Europe wouldn't let me do because I didn't want to do crazy, bonkers, insane things. Like how big a problem was that actually and it was a bit, quite a big problem if you were Steve Hilton and you wanted to replace the Department of Work and Pensions with a website and make everybody have flammable sofas that were going to kill their children. But if you were doing things within a sort of moderate scope of British politics, it didn't. It wasn't actually this huge imposition on you. But trying to do deliberately impossible things so that you can blame it on someone else when you can't do them is a very now established kind of cultural war tactic, actually.
1: Well, certainly in this case... Uh, there's obviously, I think, an element of that, because why won't it work? Well, for many reasons, but one of them is there will be legal challenges. And so the obst- you, what, you have, what you've set up is the obstruction to stopping the boats is...
2: Lefty human rights lawyers. Do you know who's a lefty human rights lawyer? Oh, it's Keir Starmer. Come on down. Yeah, I think, that's, I think, that's, that's, I think that, that, that strikes to me to be a way that they... It, again, it comes back to your point about cynicism, quite grimly cynical, like the Rwanda flights. Like how many people are even there living their you know best lives in kigali no it's it was it was there to be deliberately horrible and punitive and fought against
1: but then why isn't there an available this is a, something we've come back to uh, you keep cycling around this issue on the podcast and we never really get an answer to it like you feel intuitively the right center left leader ought to be able to call that out effectively and that not be haha, ha, you've just walked into my trap as the liberal lefty human rights lawyer. There must be a way of of being, of being asserting the moral principle that you would expect a liberal left human rights lawyer to believe in in a way that actually speaks to the humanity of lots of people and is not blundering directly into an evil trap set by a mad Australian reactionary advisor in Downing Street.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. You have to be an incredibly charismatic and eloquent left-wing leader to do that, I guess, really compelling. Uh, and I would say we had a run of, of people who who were not quite so much that. But don't also I think the fact is I mean this I'm stealing this point from Stephen Bush, who used to make it all the time, which was that with a predominantly right leaning press and a BBC which still very often doesn't break stories, that it follows stories, then you end up with ten minutes on the Today programme but about Gary Lineker and not actually interrogating the policy because the gender has been set elsewhere.
1: And also, particularly with the BBC, that is so easily terrified of being perceived to have a liberal bias because so many people who I said used to work there. I mean, the the upper echelons—it's changed a bit, but yeah, that sense that the BBC will over-report and will lean so hard into because it's
2: staffed by Remain voting graduates who live in London and the southeast, so it, it it knows it's got an open wound there to be kind of someone can jam their finger into. Yeah, definitely.
1: It takes an element of courage to say, we're not going to recover this story because you're just talking nonsense. The real issue here is, will this law or will it not stop the boats? That would be a nice thing for the BBC to dedicate some of its, you know, to lead the 10, as opposed to Gary Lineker tweeted that he wasn't going to resign or whatever it was that led the 10 o'clock news recently. I've almost said last night, but by the time you're listening to this podcast, that might be anywhere between last week and in the past when small boats were still an issue (laughs) (laughs) at
2: some some point yeah i know yeah it's i i think your point is really key though like having seen them co-op this issue from farage is i think someone thinks that's really clever and i think that's really dumb i think i think you're you're right you want you are always setting yourself up to be outbid by somebody who doesn't have any guardrails of what they can and can't say and doesn't have any, uh, you know, no one is expecting him to deliver on any of it either. I don't know. Like, why, why would you get into an auction with Farage about who can be meanest about immigrants? It's just, you're not going to win that contest, are you?
1: I mean, and actually the point about deploying legislation purely uh, as a way to demonstrate that the sort of liberal establishment is sick and broken as an American device. Actually, that gets us on something that I wanted to talk about at the beginning. We now don't even have time to talk about, which is whether it's possible. Maybe we just like, Five minutes, five minutes.
2: Go on, we'll do it in like, we'll do it in one sentence, yeah.
1: Whether it's possible that the Conservative Party right now is suffering a little bit from the obsession with US politics and thinks that there is this fantastically lucrative seam of anti-woke, radical, right-wing, slightly Trumpian politics to mine, forgetting that actually Britain is a European country and we're not so into that shit as much as the Americans are. It'd be like so having like with Kemi Badden suddenly start talking about gun control. It's like, no, because that's their weird problem. That's not our problem.
2: I know. I know. It's the one thing it's that's been really you know, when I've been writing this piece, they, they, my my editors have been like, "You know, just don't be sort of, you know, like we know it's weird that you, you like that we have all these assault rifles, but like, don't you know, don't don't go on about it." And I'm like, "But literally, like, you, I watched Gogglebox, and they were a couple of weeks ago, they had like some mad story from America about some seven-year-old who's a gun influencer on YouTube, and you know, obviously, Gogglebox is so constructed as to have representation like a kind of amazing focus group, right, from every." Age group, ethnic minority, like demographic, all over. But every person, every single person on Box was like, "That's obviously insane. Why would you give a seven-year-old a pistol?" And I, that, that sort of stuff. I think there is just great reaches of American politics that are just inaccessible to us because we just don't have the cultural background for them. Like that, we lots of things have been normalized in American politics that are just so completely alien here. But yeah, I think that's a very interesting question i think there's also a problem about the kind of youtuber influencer economy i've been thinking quite a lot about isabel oakeshott um (laughs) as as one does and the fact that you know that there is an enormous amount of money to be made um by anti-vax stuff, by ivermectin as a COVID treatment, by lockdown skepticism relitigating that kind of stuff, weren't we right all along, by lab leak as a theory, you know, as a conspiracy theory.
1: So that comes back to this question of cynicism versus stupidity versus ideology. That actually, yeah, it might be just perfectly rational to think there's an awful lot of people out there. There's a, there's a, first of all, there's a wide zone where a kind of a general crystals and wellness and new age stuff blurs into conspiracy theory uh, madness and as often anti-vax is the bridge between those yeah, two crunchy, things. Yeah, so just a commercial choice to go and be a nutter. But
2: also, if they, if they were doing stuff that I agreed with, then you would frame that as giving a voice to the voiceless people who are excluded ruthlessly from the mainstream establishment and the overton window. Right? It just so happens that I think it's all bonkers. So I think it's a cynical grift rather than being a very moving attempt to you know bring some of these alternative perspectives to the mainstream.
1: I think we're allowed to draw a distinction between political positions that are marginal and things that are literally just not true like you know, that are actual flat we'll get lies. you. That you that, <laughs> Very old-fashioned. <laughs> yeah I mean it's just sort of yeah so.
2: It's not always that clear-cut though right like some of the anti-lockdown arguments are about things like the effect on mental health of children and stuff like that you know that they are kind of reasonable and maybe harder to quantify than excess deaths from Covid like how do you stack up actual deaths versus sort of misery and long-term consequences or consequences on the NHS waiting list or cancer and stuff like that. So I think there's a problem now, but it kind of comes to that kind of giving sucker to the enemy, right? That it now, the danger is that that becomes so polarized that we never have a proper conversation about what a good what like what the limits of a uh, next time of a of a lockdown policy should be what's an acceptable level of trade offs between the two but my hope is that the covid inquiry deals with that in a kind of normal measured way so it doesn't have to be settled by like opinion columnists duking it out which would be bad
1: exactly that point that you don't want to you judge whether or not you hold or express an opinion based on you know who the worst possible person who might also hold that opinion is, and that's very limiting. So, you know, if you, that's, you know, on the lockdown thing, yes, it it should be possible to say, look, well, actually, you know, the kids who were locked out of school, maybe that was just a mistake because the long-term effects of that, as you say, you know, are hard to measure, but the company you might end up keeping by articulating that view, if you're, generally sane and rational <laughs> um, about a lot of other stuff in terms of whether or not vaccines, you know, are, are, are a lie and 5G masts gave you COVID. Um you'd just rather just say nothing because you don't want to you don't want to have a hostage argument to I think that happens in lots of these issues, unfortunately. It means the middle area gets completely depopulated of voices.
2: Oh, I yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think I think that is a, a massive problem. I also think no one wants to write kinda of normie takes right? Everybody wants to stake out their kind of interesting or contrarian or provocative position and writing a piece that says vaccines work and basically everyone in Britain loved them and would have more if they could. Turns out they taste
1: delicious too, you know.
2: <laughs> right? It's just like, but no one... Oh. But but that's the, that is the story of vaccines in Britain. Like I was reading now, you know, the fact that they're not going to offer them You know they're only going to offer them to the elderly and vulnerable now. People are like quite grumpy about that. Like you hear all constantly about all these Americans who are thinking it's a terrible imposition, and what about my body, my choice? And you
1: don't really hear a lot about all the British people who are gagging for more vaccines. They want to be vaccinated up the wazoo. And that comes back to that. I think that misreading again of 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 the extent to which British political culture is like. And isn't like the American one. I mean, there was so many Tory people who were in government in early 2020 have said to me, I think a lot of them have gone on record now saying it, that they couldn't believe like how well behaved people no. were in lockdown. Because Boris Johnson is a sort of libertarian slash libertine likes the idea of breaking the rules. He just thought it was so obvious that Merry England would never tolerate the pubs being shuttered and he couldn't possibly be the man who did that. And it turns out that they had the opposite problem. They were people were like locking themselves down too diligently. They just, and then it was just.
2: Yeah. And we discovered that Britain was actually a sort of deeply authoritarian place and the sheer lure of authoritarianism, which is that like it just relieves you of a huge cognitive burden because you just get told what to do and then you just have to do it. And like, you might not be happy about it, yeah. but like you, you aren't riven by existential angst. I think I really kind of saw that in those months. And like, I felt it too. And this is what I mean. I come back to the people who are now very upset about it and trying to preach the kind of lockdown regret. I think a lot of them felt scared and wanted to be told what to do. And now they feel, they feel that they've humbled themselves in some way.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Well, there's a sense that you just feel a bit... Yeah, you gave up too much of yourself in some way, and then
2: emasculated, like that. You bent the knee. You're not, you're not sheeple, You know, you're a proud individualist, and and yet, actually, all the, where, where all, where were all those proud individualists at the end of March 2020?
1: What was it, Marcus Fish said? You know, we're not a papers police society. This is the stuff of Nazi Germany, or the, it might, or equivalent type, sort of ludicrous hyperbole. It's
2: been a real banner year for comparing things to Nazi Germany, hasn't it?
1: If in doubt, probably the third rise, probably on the slippery slope. I think we know where all slippery slopes slide to in the end.
2: Um, it all end in a tiny toothbrush moustache. Yeah, it's true.
1: But you know, the idea that this was incredibly draconian and an affront to decent constitutional rule and done in a, in a incredibly slapdash away that was actually true <laughs> i mean yeah, the, no
2: that's the thing i think the most right?
1: extraordinary law was passed very quickly with no scrutiny that essentially had all the theoretical apparatus not, not of an authoritarian of a tot- of a mad ultra totalitarian state and i can't make up my mind whether it's brilliance that It just happened, then they just lifted it again because, like, well, we don't need that anymore, and no one thought, well, let's keep this, and then we can have a totalitarian state and rule forever. (laughs) Yeah, so hooray, Britain for just not being the country that did that, and also, well, that's a bit frightening that they did that, and actually, only the mad people complained about it.
2: Yeah, I know what you mean, but again, it comes back to that: Do you want to write the piece that puts you on the wrong side of your, you know, your in-group? Because the thing I think there is not enough reporting on is the fact that even now, and I think what's his name, Tristan, the Evening Standard's courts reporter is still diligently working them because of the backlog in magistrates' courts is ludicrous. Um, there are still COVID prosecutions working their way through the system and people who are like you know homeless or had mental health problems or alcohol problems or whatever it might be did less than Boris Johnson did and are getting punished with you know things that are kind of escalating
1: yeah surely you need an amnesty for that stuff now don't you well how is that not a thing
2: what, I, but that's, how has that not happened and how, and how is no one agitating for it and like it's one of those things that annoys me because it truly kind well, of well
1: we're too journalists I feel we all you <laughs> you know, actually why isn't yeah, someone else agitating for this I'm now agitating on this podcast that's going to be the first campaign of the Politics on the Couch podcast. me. Be-
2: OK, that should be a postcard because madly banging people up for very minor COVID infractions. That was and is appalling. And it was really, you know, um, classist, all of that stuff, right? It was really, it was so much easier to do lockdown in your lovely big leafy home with a garden and a spare bedroom than it was for like, you know, 19-year-olds in university halls or whatever it might be.
1: What was the great line that someone used that said lockdown was essentially middle-class people hiding while working-class people brought them stuff? Pretty efficient description of in lots of cases what happened.
2: Sort of true, but the only consolation, I guess, being that it did drive quite a lot of those middle-class people bonkers as far as I can see, both in the sense of falling down conspiracy rabbit holes and also in the sense of encouraging their weird anxiety disorders to persist for a long time. Whereas if you were like a postman or a delivery driver, then you sort of had to kind of just learn to live with it, right? Rather than, I, you know, I and I see this more in America, that there were people who were just like still now double masking and stuff like that. And you think,
1: whereas I think, again... That's because it became a badge of cultural identity. I mean, here it was uh, astonishingly... Yeah, and it didn't happen here in the same way. I mean, it became political towards the end, and it became political politicised because of Johnson and Partygate. But actually... I remember talking to pollsters at the time saying, look, the reason Keir Starmer's getting no purchase on this and this is just an absolute death valley for him politically in every respect is because most people just see this as a big storm that's blown in and it's not a political event. And no amount of the, the left oh, and Labour sort of saying Boris Johnson's awful, he's terrible, he's getting this all wrong is going to change anyone's minds about that. He only changed after Barnard Castle. That was the point at which it flipped.
2: But also to the credit of the, the Conservative Party, they did treat it in a much more grown-up fashion than the American right from the start, and still to this day, right? The Andrew Bridgen kind of tendency has been ruthlessly marginalised uh, in a way that just simply hasn't happened in, in other places.
1: Yeah, hooray for us! <laughs> We're only slightly pocketed.
2: I know, no, but I like, I, you know, I always like to end every podcast by praising the Tory Party. Just to, you know, thank, thank you to them for everything they've yeah. done for
1: us. Um. You know, it's a great bunch of lads. Vaccine rollout, hooray! Why? Well, well, let's have a, another another twelve years, another thirteen years.
2: No, but there was a you know, like even wearing like ministers wearing masks and stuff like that, right? Which a lots of you know was seen as being quite humbling and stuff like that. I'm just the, the, the Atlantic's just run a really brilliant profile of Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is like Arnold Schwarzenegger's final act. And I think one of the best things that he did during the lockdowns was he. Narrated again, like using the the language that people spoke to people on the right about strength. You know, like he had a whole thing that was like wearing masks. Like you know, we fought the Second World War and put up with you know privation for four years, and you can't even just put something over your nose and mouth. Like grow up, you're a man. Like a man takes one for the team, and 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 flipping that rhetoric round, I thought was really incredibly effective. So, you know, that, and that was definitely less of an issue here than it was over there, right? That it was something humbling about wearing a mask. Um, or getting the vaccine or whatever it might be.
1: I'm trying to now think when and if it really caught on as a culture war emblem at all. and and
2: I don't think it did because I think actually, to credit to the left here, that once everyone got the vaccine, everyone was a bit like, well, we can probably stop with the masks now, can't we? Like we've done that. But that which I think was a totally normal thing to do. Like if you had to pick, what you would want is 75% of your population vaccinated and not wearing masks anymore rather than... A much lower percentage, but then some people vaccinated, but then some people wearing like fifteen masks.
1: Well, this comes back to yeah. We should probably stop on this point because it's getting late. If you want to be optimistic, again, in terms of thinking, maybe we're not. We don't have to be completely polarized, and we're not vulnerable to endless sort of self destruction by culture wars, uh, and we're not living in a post truth bog of uh, relativity and relativism. That means that there is no facts that can be commonly agreed. I mean the single biggest thing that happened between 2020 and 2023 was ultimately a story of science very quickly investigating a problem coming up with a really good solution delivering a vaccine unbelievable i like, saw so you think about like the black death or whatever you know it was basically mm-hmm. people running around sort of flagellants you know marching from town to town you know, yeah, penitently praying for salvation while actually spreading the disease of 600 years before they were going to get the antibiotics. We had, what, nine months between someone saying, well, this is a bit nasty and here's a vaccine. And that's amazing. And people took it and it worked. And it was like, that's a, that's a story of progress and I know truth, actual scientific truth, demonstrable facts, totally winning out over bad things and superstition. So that's hooray.
2: I know. And I think it's a shame that the, actually that the Tory party have stopped telling that story because it was a a deeply patriotic and kind of compelling story. I know exactly what you mean. My parents were both 74 when the pandemic came out and my mum had just recovered from pleurisy. And I thought there is no way they're making it out the other side of this. And yet there they are still going to the garden center now, so both 77 and I've had, you know, at least another extra three years with them. And I, you know, and they were like they were first in the queue for the vaccine. They couldn't have. They couldn't have, They were very proud of having got the AstraZeneca one. They went, We want the British one. They said. But like that was kind
1: of. What a Morris Minor of vaccines! That guy <laughs> felt rough after that one. <laughs> I was very glad to get me a bit of a good solid Pfizer. Tasted much better in my arm. I'll tell you that much.
2: Well, there was a, there was unfortunately a split in this household because Jonathan was so old that he got the AstraZeneca, whereas some of us who were extremely youthful were uh, were were, were Pfizered from the start. So yeah, now I got the proper grey goose, you know, like chilled uh, shots from the start, and he got the kind of workman like beer draft.
1: And science rules, and actually facts are a thing, even if people talk about post-truth politics and in a polarized world actually there is a solid ground of evidence and reality that everyone can climb aboard and there's probably more of us who want to be there than the mad angry internet people like to pretend that's my that's I believe that I think
2: it's rousing. I like that. That was almost as rousing as that bit you did on the Daily Politics, which was very rousing.
1: That was quite rousing. Although that was very partisan. That was the opposite that was, you know, except well, I obviously I like to think it was true, but that 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 was that was a rant.
2: <laughs> no, I, I, I thought it was objective because I agreed with it.
1: Well quite. Um and and for more on uh brilliant insights and the all the things we've been talking about. Buy my book and also Ellen's book.
2: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> buy Raf's book first, and then if you've got, if you're just flush with
1: cash, then maybe also buy difficult women. How do we promote your output? The Atlantic. You write for the Atlantic. You have the Substack. We do all these things.
2: I do. I don't tweet anymore though, Raf. I've given it up. Have you really though? I'm clean since the whole of 2023. Oh I'm, really? So I did one tweet. I I've decided not to be like clean,
1: but apart from the one, yeah, we've all done that. I just had it was just one in the pub, you know.
2: Just okay. Just had. It, I just had one tote, but I didn't inhale. No, I um, I had to. I had to um, reply to someone because uh, I wanted them to be a source for a story, and I was like, "Hi, this is interesting. Can you contact me?" And then now I've since deleted that. But no, I've not had any spicy opinions, um, on Twitter, and let me tell you, it feels good. I've become the kind of unbearable ex alcoholic who now texts other people when I see them getting into fights on Twitter. It's like, have you considered not getting into fights on Twitter? It actually feels really amazing when you don't. Yeah, you've just got like your skin is so much clearer, you've got so much more time. Yeah, for the you're stuff. the
1: person who goes, oh, I now can't stand the smell of smoke. Oh, it makes me feel sick just thinking about oh, it. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah, you're The smell one of, those of internet arguments um, repulses me.
2: Yeah, but I put my spicy opinions uh, on Substack and WhatsApp groups. I put my spicy opinions in in various WhatsApp groups. No, it's not reading books or anything like that. I just, TikTok actually has been brilliant because I
1: just consume that. (laughs) That sounds like you are just saying I'm so glad I gave up heroin. I'm just, because crack actually is, to tell you what, that stuff. really
2: takes the edge off. It's very (laughs) Moorish. Yeah.
1: Right. That's enough drugs, metaphors and self-promotion. Let's upload these files. Stay on the line, Helen. And thank you very much for coming on our podcast. That's all right. Like you a bit more enthusiastic about that's all right. <laughs> oh, yeah, I oh, if I must. You said a bit more enthusiastic about it. <laughs>
2: okay. Let me give you flawless. Okay. Do it again.
1: I'm ready. And so, thanks Helen for coming on the podcast again. Thank you for having me on.
2: Yeah. Didn't even sound Perfect. sarcastic. Yeah. It was just no, beautiful.
1: Not at all. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I didn't even look sarcastic. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Thank you for listening to another edition of Politics on the Couch hope you enjoyed it if you would like to read some of helen lewis's work a good starting point is to go to her Substack page which is called the blue stocking for an elderly generation x like myself is the only way i can stay in touch with what millennials or generation whatever else they're called generation zedders are up to so go check that out there's also a radio four program on at the moment um called the spark which she um hosts and conducts really interesting long-form interviews with uh, people who've got sparks of ideas that are worth listening to and also the atlantic has just released one of helen's long reads all about the state of the america state of florida looking at the culture politics etc etc there you go we'll put some links in the show notes and oh i almost forgot i don't know if you know but raf's got a book out too which you can reorder or at his website rafaelbear.com that's about it for this week thanks so much indeed for listening um until next time bye